Hello, my name is Kristen Gutu, and this is the third episode of Technically Biased. Today's guest speaker is Angela Saini, who will be discussing her latest book, The Patriarchs, How Men Came to Rule. She is also the author of Superior, The Return of Race Science, and of Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong. Thank you so much for being here today, Angela. Can you please further introduce yourself? Um, yeah, my, uh, I'm a science journalist and author, um, and I was just a general reporter, news reporter covering politics and crime and lots of other things for the BBC and ITN uh, before I became a full-time science writer. Um, and my books focus on how science sits in society and particularly with regards to race and gender. So how we think about human difference um, because of what the sciences say and, and how the sciences are affected by bias. And bias is what we are here to talk about today. In the patriarchs, you span a number of cultures throughout thousands of years, and you mentioned that, quote, we are constrained by our own experiences and beliefs, end quote. Can you explain what this means in this context? When we think about the history of gender, um, when we look at um, gender depression, I think uh, there are lots of different ways that we can interpret it. So I do think there are a lot of people still who believe that men's oppression of women has is eternal, that it's always been there. And it's a product of some biological differences between men and women. For example, this idea that men are on average bigger and stronger than women. So they've always had had some power over them. There are others who think that um, patriarchy began with the dawn of agriculture or the big states or civilization. Um, but all these different accounts are colored in some way, I think, by our preconceptions, by the societies that we live in. So even experts and very brilliant scholars throughout the ages have been affected by the societies that they're in and their belief that their societies are the best, um, which is a very natural bias to have. I think many of us have that because we're raised a certain way and we come to see the way that we live as universal, timeless and the best. Um, so there are real problems, I think, in the way that even now, when anthropologists and archaeologists look at gender in history, there's a problem in projecting modern day ideas onto the past. You referenced this idea that some people believe that men's suppression of women is eternal. In that same vein, in your book, you quote Anne Phillips as saying, subservience does not on the whole come naturally to people. You also reference religious texts that remind women of their place in society, such as when Eve was punished for her transgression in the Garden of Eden, she was told that your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Can you discuss how these points overlap and how we use religion to enforce women's subservience in society? I think we have to remember that the history of religion is a very variegated one. So I don't think that patriarchy began with religion um, because we see uh, aspects of gender depression in states that predate it. And certainly the big monotheistic religions today that we associate with patriarchy um, are 
you know, relatively recent in human evolutionary history. Um, and at the beginning, they weren't seen as oppressive. So you have to remember, for example, in antiquity, when Christianity came along as a religious cult, or one of many religious cults that existed in ancient Rome, um, it was seen as revolutionary to many people because it preached a doctrine of human equality in societies in which um, people were very rigidly unequal. These were slave-owning societies with very rigid hierarchies, not just around gender, but particularly around class and wealth and status, whether you were free or not free, whether you were a citizen or not a citizen. Um, so to be told by... Um, you know, the priests in a cult or the or the doctrine of cult that you were equal was hugely kind of liberating to a lot of people. And th that is why so many people flocked to Christianity, especially those among the lower classes, those who were poorer, who were on the margins of society. And it was the same with Islam later on. You know, Islam, again, yeah. preached a, this kind of idea of equality that honestly didn't you know, was revelatory to a lot of people. And women flocked to it. Women flocked to Islam at the beginning. Um, what you see over time is that the establishments or the institutions of religion get co-opted into patriarchal state projects. So one of the arguments I make in my book is that um, the first signs of gender depression that we see in the historical record are in the earliest states. And this is driven by those in charge being concerned about keeping up population, making sure that there are enough uh, young men available to fight for the state or young people available to fight for the state and um, pushing these gendered rules on people in order to make sure that there is uh, there are enough babies and that there is a sense of loyalty among families. Um, and this is why religions, you know, religions, the establishment of religion, which is running which is developing concurrently with the with the establishment of empires and states becomes interested in these same ideas you know why is the vatican today so preoccupied with sex and the family and having children within wedlock and the heterosexual family always reinforcing these family norms a lot of that is is about the needs of those early states so it's not necessarily that the religion started out that way it's that they became that way over time because of the interests of those in power i'm glad you mentioned that because in your book you touch a lot on this concept that there is no such thing as the patriarchy but rather a collection of patriarchies that have evolved across time among many cultures to take it back to one of the earlier civilizations you discuss can you share a little about the gender roles in Chattelhuyuk? So in Chattelhuyuk, what you see um, in this settlement, which is 9,000 years old, um, you see that there isn't much difference in the way that men and women live. This is a Neolithic settlement that predates by thousands of years uh, Stonehenge or the first pyramids in Egypt. It predates writing as far as we're aware. Um, and yet men and women, uh, it, and yet it is incredibly complex and you see men and women living very similar lives. So they spend around the same, and this is from archaeological evidence, we can know this from human remains. We can see that 
men and women ate pretty much the same food. They were buried in very similar ways. They did the same kind of work. They spent around the same amount of time indoors and outdoors. Uh, women certainly weren't invisible. You can see female figurines all over the region from that period of time. Um, and some of them showing women in very authorita uh, authoritative um, poses. So we can't say that prehistory, that period of time in that region was necessarily patriarchal because we don't have evidence of it. Now, Maria Gimbutas' theory was that patriarchy in Old Europe dates back roughly three to 6,000 years ago and comes from the Russian steppes. What are your thoughts on this? We have lots of uh, philosophers, anthropologists and archaeologists from the 19th century onwards forming theories about how we came to be patriarchal as societies. And some of this was driven by the fact that there were revolutions happening in Europe, um, you know, from the late 18th century onwards, that were really upturning social norms and forcing people to ask themselves, what is natural about inequality? How, where does this come from? Why do we accept it? Um, and gender equality was part of that question. You know, how did we, how did men come to have so much power? Maria Gimbutas in the 70s and 80s um, brought archaeology to this question. She wasn't the first to do it because there had been other um, anthropologists before that had um, speculated about the possibility that human societies were all matriarchal once and then they became patriarchal over time. Um, and uh, Gimbutas certainly added to that theory um, through her own work. She was a Lithuanian um, archaeologist, very controversial, but very high profile. And she looked at mythology and folklore from Eastern Europe, and also all of these female figurines, which were incredibly famous in the 60s and 70s, because they really, you know, at a time during the civil rights era, uh, during this big wave of feminism, um, made force people to think differently about prehistory and women's role in prehistory. And Gimbutas argued that old Europe, so this is Europe um, before antiquity, um, was um, more female-focused um, and that it became less female-focused over time as a result of um, a kind of invasion of patriarchal peoples from the Eurasian steppe. Um, and it's an interesting, it's an interesting theory, uh, controversial partly because it associates culture with migration, which is a very dangerous idea um, that was popularized by the Nazis in Germany. This idea that there was um, that ethnicity and race and everything were bound up with each other, that biology and culture were somehow one thing. Um, so it was a bit risky in that way, what she was saying. Um, and also she she had a tendency to overstep the evidence. So she would sometimes read goddesses into evidence that was very ambiguous. Um, so for those reasons, she was uh, widely, she was very controversial. She was very popular among feminists and she inspired a whole literature on matriarchy and patriarchy. But um her colleagues, men and women among archaeologists, were quite scathing about her work. Knowing that Gimbutas found symbolism where there often may have been none, 
We come to a point in her research that claims that goddesses gradually moved into the background of Greek mythology as Greek gods came to the front lines and started displaying more violent tendencies. Is there any significance to her observation of this? It's absolutely true that in ancient religions, um, so this is predating, obviously, Christianity, Islam, um, you do see many gods and goddesses. It's not, you know, these, this kind of monotheistic form of religion came later. And in this, or at least the way that we imagine it now came later. Um, and those gods and goddesses took many different forms and sometimes, you know, very human qualities, but often quite superhuman qualities as well. So you see a lot of um, uh kind of ambiguity gender-wise between these gods and goddesses. So, for example, you have goddesses like Athena, who is a warrior goddess, a goddess of war. Um, and you also have um, other gods um, who display characteristics that may be more feminine, you know, stereotypically feminine or a bit more ambiguous. Um, and you have in Greek mythology, um, you know, lots of stories of people, there are stories of people changing gender or of meta, these stories of metamorphosis. Um, and over time, of course, uh, what you see with the rise of the monotheistic religions is a lot of that changing and being erased. Um, so that's absolutely true that if you look at the development of religion and which religions became popular, what we're left with is a very different picture from what would have existed in the past. There was much less, there was much more variety in the past. There's much less variety now. But that's not to say that in other religious traditions, God and, gods and goddesses haven't been preserved. They have. So within Hinduism, you can see many, many different goddesses and some of them very powerful and violent. So for example, Kali, um, who I start, I open the book with a mention of her. And the reason I do that is a reminder of how differently power has been imagined throughout history. In Kali, you have this image of a goddess who is bloodthirsty, um, kind of ecstatically bloodthirsty, who is not afraid to kill demons and carry their heads. She wears their, the demons kind of disembodied heads and dismembered arms as necklaces and belts, you know, she is incredibly um, striking. And so much so that in the 19th century and early 20th century, the image of Kali was so terrifying to British colonialists in India that Indian nationalists used her as a symbol against colonial rule. So you can see in the in the kind of nationalist literature, this use of the goddess Kali as a way of striking fear into the heart of um uh, British colonialists. Um, so there is still, you know, even today within human societies, there are still goddesses. People still worship, worship goddesses in many different cultures. They do still exist. It's just that these big monotheistic religions that have become so widespread and partly we have to admit through very aggressive uh, work of missionaries and sometimes incredibly um, uh, damaging that that missionary work in the way that it, it has sought to erase and undermine other people's cultures um you know we there is a much more homogenized and less excitingly varied picture of religion 
So we see how goddesses evolve across time, across cultures, and the different attributes that are valued in them and are projected onto them. In that same vein, can you discuss how the American woman was reimagined in the 1950s to adhere to a very specific housewife trope that was less imagined in the previous decades? Actually, the idea of the American housewife or the domesticated woman um, exists right from the foundation of the United States. So the founding fathers very explicitly um, sought to um, promote this idea that a woman's place was in the home and a man's place was in the public, you know, doing public things. Um, and that stretched so far that they deliberately denied women the vote at the dawn of that democracy, even though they knew they were they were building what they thought to be the most egalitarian society on the planet. Um, they deliberately did not extend the vote to women or to slaves, for that matter, um, you know, to or, or to Native Americans, for that matter, um, because not everybody was seen as being part of that project. And the reason women were denied the vote was was quite explicit. You can see um, in the way that they framed it was that um, it was thought that if they wanted any political voice, then they could exercise it vicariously through their husbands. And so that idea, that ideal has existed for a very long time. It's kind of woven into the idea of the United States, the whole project. Um, so it should come as no surprise to us that in the 1950s, it was resurrected again because there were still leaders who very much believed in it. After the Second World War, um, in the first half of the 20th century, there was a great deal of um, involvement of women in the war effort, obviously. Um, but also before the Second World War, there were quite high rates of women going into higher education. That all changed um, when men came back from war. And women, in order to make sure that their jobs were preserved and in service of this idea of the domesticated housewife, women were expected to stay at home. And that ideal became resurrected again. In the book, you compare the American woman and the Native American woman who had so many more rights at this time. Can you talk about Seneca Falls and the Women's Rights Convention? Yep. Like I said, the United States was founded on this principle of the domesticated housewife. Um, and that did sit at odds with other societies in the world who had very different cultural traditions and different customs, including within the Americas themselves. So there are many Native American societies that are matrilineal. Um, so matrilineal means that name and property is passed from mother to daughter rather than from father to son, in which women play a very big role in agriculture. So there's certainly no sense that they should be domesticated and also have a lot of power and authority. So among the Haudenosaunee, which is... Um, in parts of New York where I live now, which is includes their territory, um, there is um, there is this very strong sense that you know life began with a woman. That you know in in these religious origin tales, um, it's a sky mother who is the kind of font of agriculture and and humanity, um, and that um, clan mothers are one of the symbols and roots of authority within their communities. 
Um, and clan mothers, of course, predate the founding fathers by hundreds of years. So something that I really liked learning about in your book is that when indigenous people started learning English after colonization, they routinely spoke of the man as she and the woman as he. And you mentioned that they would switch the fifth commandment when learning Christianity from thy father and thy mother to thy mother and thy father. So I think this gives insight into how malleable gender roles are and how they're perceived differently in different cultures, different people. Can you talk about how the indigenous people believed in multiple genders versus how that perspective contrasted uh, Greece's approach with intersex people and Iran's perspective regarding transgender people? So a lot of cultures, a lot of different thoughts on the matter. We have to remember that um, that this kind of binary way of um, framing sex and gender, the very rigid binary way and the stereotypes associated with each sex is a very particular and niche way of thinking about human difference. Um, and the reason that in West, in the West, people have these, have that very binary way of thinking is because in Europe, from the Enlightenment onwards, that became the frame within which um, these ideas, the, this was imagined, and that was fed by religious ideas from Christianity. It was fed by it was fed by lots of different things, um, but the belief was that the you know men and women were built differently, designed differently for divine reasons, and that there was a suite of physical and psychological differences between us that made us suited for different things. So it, it very much served political ideals and social ideals about how society should be structured. Um, and of course, different societies that are structured differently have very different ideas about how gender and sex work. Um, and that shouldn't surprise us because uh, we don't exist in two very distinct types, even though there are kind of clearer biological differences between men and women, they often sit, there are many parts of us that sit on a spectrum, um, you know, that don't don't fit in neatly within, within categories. Um, and that's true across our lifetime. So while, for example, you might associate reproduction with women, of course, there are long periods of a woman's life in which she cannot give birth because she is too young or because she is past menopausal age. So those kind of nuances and the fact that seniority and age and other factors can also play into the role that someone plays, even within the category that they're in, I think is quite easily overlooked when all you have to turn to is that binary, is that gender binary and, and there's nothing else for you. Um, whereas in other cultures, I think there is much greater accommodation for all those nuances and com complexities. So many different cultures, for example, in India, where my family are from and, and where I've lived and worked, um, there has always been, even though it is a very patriarchal society, there has always been um, an acceptance that there is a third gender, that there are, there are transgender people, the term is hijra. And although, you know, they're not always very well respected and sometimes they're even feared, 
um, there is a there is a universal acknowledgement that they do exist and that they have always existed because they're because that is just how it is. You know that that's just how gender manifests. And um, it's the same among some Native American societies that there is an accommodation for different genders. Um, you may have heard the term two spirit, which is often which has come back into popular usage now. Um, but that kind of captures this idea of somebody who um, uh, carries different gender characteristics or a mix of gender characteristics. But in all honesty, I think we're all a mix of gender characteristics. If we want to think about it that way, we have a lot, you know, every single one of us is not kind of, you know, it's not the case that every woman just has just is stereotypically feminine in every way or that every man is stereotypically masculine in every way we're all really always a mix and this is why i reference iran specifically we talk about the fluidity of gender and how it's not strictly binary cannot be so easily categorized but then we see the iranian state subsidizing sexual reassignment operations with the belief that this will help bring a person's mind and body into correct alignment. So to a good degree, that's good. But then on the other hand, once the procedure is um, completed, there are still strict gender roles that are expected of these citizens to abide to. So can you talk about that perspective a little bit? The Iranian state is also patriarchal. And this is why I'm so careful in the book to talk about patriarchies rather than patriarchy. There isn't one form of patriarchy. Every different state has its own way of thinking about gender and power. And that is a product of its own particular histories and circumstances, customs, traditions, religions. Now, in Iran... Um, the way there is still this this commitment to a binary, there is still this idea that there is a gender binary. But instead of, for example, the Vatican framing that as you are born a certain sex and you cannot ever change, that sex and gender are the same, and that you are born this way, and God has made you this way, and you and you know, uh, however much surgery you have, whatever you wear, you will always belong to that sex. In Iran, the way they have interpreted this is to say that if you believe yourself to be a different gender, then actually you are required, it would be best for you to have surgery to bring your your physical self into alignment with uh, how you imagine yourself uh, in order to live the life that you should be living. And once you've made that transition, you live fully within that category. So for example... Um, a transgender woman in Iran would be expected to wear the veil and would have to follow all the rules around marriage and everything else that is expected of women in that state. Um, so it's not the case that it's a kind of more enlightened view of how to think about sex and gender. It's a different one. Um, and it still sits within a patriarchal framework. It's just a different way of thinking about sex and gender. And the reason that's important to remember is because it reminds us how constructed these ideas are. The way that a state uses these ideas and interprets them is really in service of um, its own aims. 
it's always in service of its own aims. And um, there is no necessary kind of way of doing things. There's no one consistent way that all states behave when it comes to deciding how sex and gender should work because there is so much uncertainty around these things. Because like I said, we as human beings don't fit firmly within these categories. If we acknowledge that gender is fluid and people do not strictly fit into either category, the next logical question to ask ourselves is, who are the people maintaining these gender roles and this sexist ideology? And a common misconception is that patriarchies are upheld only by the men in the system. And this simply is not the case. Can you share how women maintain sexist patriarchal forces? Of course, every single one of us exists um, and are raised within a system that then becomes part of our identity. Um, and the best we can often do as individuals is is make that work for us. Um, now, for many of us, that means kind of pushing back against the system and trying to introduce more equality into the system. But for others, it can mean working with the system in such a way that we can leech some advantage out of it. So there is a very beautiful literature looking at, for example, the um, the role of the mother-in-law in the traditional patriarchal family. This is a bit, you know, less relevant in societies like the United States, where people tend to live in nuclear families and leave home once they get married. But in large swathes of the world where people live in extended families, for example, in Asia, the Middle East and in Africa, in patriarchal societies, what will often happen is that women will leave their childhood homes to live with their husband's families. And within those households, mother-in-laws play a huge role. And sometimes these mother-in-laws will be upholding those patriarchal norms because it serves them to have a woman in the household, a young bride, who will do exactly what she says, who will do everything for her um, if she maintains this patriarchal system. Um, that has been described by the scholar Denise Candiotti in the 1980s as the patriarchal bargain, that the young bride coming into this patriarchal household knows that if she just puts up with that abuse and exploitation and she has a son, that eventually she will become a mother-in-law and then she can do the same thing. And through that way then, not because it's ideal, obviously everybody, nobody, everybody knows that it's not ideal, but because it serves you in the in your own life and it's the best you can make of that situation you are incentivized to keep it going um and in those small little ways you know that's how we participate and prop, um perpetuate systems that that are not good for all of us in line with perpetuating systems that are not good for all of us you mentioned that we resign ourselves to the systems and institutions we have, even when we know they are not working. Can you discuss what this means in context of the Kyrgyz brides and their, quote, boundary between choice and coercion, end quote? So you have to remember that throughout history, um, in every region of the world for thousands of years, there have been practices of captive taking and slavery. and the patriarchal institution of marriage 
borrowed from these institutions of slavery for reasons I've just given, that in patrilocal marriage, what you have is a woman leaving her childhood home to go and live in somebody else's house. So she essentially becomes a stranger in a new household and yet completely embedded within that new household. So family and a stranger at the same time. And um, from you know, that was often what slavery was. If you read the beautiful work on slavery of um, Orlando Patterson, he writes about um, the relationship between a slave and a master in ancient Egypt being at once an exploitative and degrading one, but also a remarkably intimate one, you know, very bonded, actually bonded, legally bonded to each other. Um, and through... And like I said, throughout history, that overlap between captive taking slavery and marriage, I think, is even more explicit in cases of war in which in ancient wars, uh, people would invade regions, kill all the men and take away the young women and children. And those young women, some of them would go on to become wives of of the people that were taken. Um, Even in the Bible, there are passages explaining what men should do if a woman is taken captive and they want to take her for a bride. So the kind of rituals that you have to undergo in order to make her your wife. Um, So there is a, there is a literal then association between captive taking and marriage in those cases. And that survives in the modern day in the ritual of bride abduction, which you can see in some parts of the world and particularly in Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan is quite famous for its bride abduction customs. Now today, of course, that literal bride abduction is a bit less true because um, it's, it's more of a custom. So even when two, uh, two people have decided to get married, sometimes they will enact this ritual as a show, you know, as a kind of traditional show, um, because that's what ex- what is expected. So it's not it, it's not in any way coercion on the part uh, of the man to bring a woman home. But there are still actual literal bride abductions as well. And, and there's a very interesting literature looking at the impact this has on women and on their children to be abducted in this way. To wrap up my final question, we see examples of the lines blurring between captive taking and marriage or spousal relationships. And again, I mentioned that there's this misconception that girls and women cannot and will not fight back. To end us off, can you share some examples of girls and women fighting back? Well, we're talking about two different things now. If you mean fighting back against patriarchy, that is something very different from fighting or being a warrior for your state or for your community. Um, So we have lots of evidence, loads of evidence, actually, of women warriors right throughout history defending their nations, defending their states. In the Mongol Empire, it was um, we have beautiful evidence of women warriors, including a great, great granddaughter of Genghis Khan. There may be another great in there somewhere, but great, great granddaughter of Genghis Khan, the princess Kutalun, who was famous for uh, accompanying her father um, into wars and led and reportedly 
uh, demanding that any man who wanted to marry her had to beat her in wrestling first. So she's sometimes described as a wrestling princess. So we have a lot of evidence of women who were warriors defending their state, defending their communities. Fighting back against patriarchy is a different thing because what you're asking then is, are they fighting against their own communities, within their own communities? And of course, there's also a long tradition of resistance. You know, it's not as though women just rolled over and said, okay, we'll accept patriarchal systems, we'll allow, we'll allow this to just happen. That emerged over many thousands of years. And I think the reason it emerged so slowly is because there was always resistance. This is not an easy thing for people to accept. Um, there was always negotiation. And you can see that also in the literature, sometimes in quite hidden ways. So for example, Greek literature is incredibly misogynistic. But um, one of the reasons that there's such a seething hatred of women, I think, and fear of women, I think, is because um, because women weren't just sitting there and, you know, happily kind of accepting everything. There, there was always, there must always have been tensions there. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have. I have so many more questions for you, as I'm sure our listeners do. So I hope that is incentive for everybody listening to go by The Patriarchs, How Men Came to Rule, or in America, The Patriarchs, The Origins of Inequality, and go check it out learn everything you can because there is so much we left out but thank you angela i appreciate you taking the time to chat with us you're so welcome thank you for having me tune in next week for another episode of technically biased where we discuss how our lived experiences and perspectives color the way we see the world have a good one everyone